uh, James chapter 1. Open up to James 1. And today, this morning, we're going to look at James 1, verses 16 through 18. James 1, verses 16 through 18. And God's word reads as follows. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Lord, as we enter into your word, we thank you, God, for it. We thank you that in it we find words of comfort and life and encouragement. In it we find the truth, the truth about you and the truth about ourselves. And God, in light of that truth, when we live in it, we find joy and blessing. And so help us today that your word would write itself on our hearts so that we would walk in the ways that you would want us to walk, that we would have joy as you desire us to have joy. And God, above all things, that we would have faith and trust and dependency upon who Christ is and what he's done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There it is. Um, Not an uncommon situation, things not working. Um, I've alluded to it several times, and I will do so yet again because it's always fond and a fond memory, fresh on my heart, something I think about, have nightmares about regularly. It is those buses that took us to Regen. <laughs> I just can't get them out of my mind. Uh, they live there, dead, like they were when we took them. Uh, if you remember, when we went to camp, we did have a situation with the bus, didn't we? And I don't know if you know the full story about it or not. Um, There's been myths and legends and all kinds of tales that have come out of the bus debacle. But I want to tell you the truth. I want you to know exactly what happened to the bus. Bus bashful. Bashful is what bashful does. It just didn't want to do anything. It was kind of nervous. And I'm here to tell you the truth about it. Uh, We did have a bus that kind of was faulty and failing on us. Uh, The bus had a water pump issue. You understand what a water pump is? Me neither. Um, But I understood that was the problem. Um, And here's the thing. We kind of sort of knew when we left, but didn't. The bus was leaking all kinds of fluid. And they said, that's fine. So we said, okay. And then the engine was going to blow up. So we were like, that's not fine, right? And they were like, no but we got this. So they went to the water pump, which because it was leaking and because it was cracked and not working right, they were filling it up over and over every three miles with more coolant to try to keep the engine cool in the bus. Otherwise, it it wouldn't, uh, it's not going to blow up. I'm not trying to scare you, but the bus wouldn't work. And we did that for quite some time. Bus drivers pulling off to the side of the road, refilling the water pump, back and forth all day until we got to Flagstaff where the bus said, I'm sick of it and I'm not doing this anymore. And the bus died, RIP. 
That would have been July 29th, 2022. RIP, rest in peace. The bus died. All the signs were there. The leaking, the crazy noises, the overheating, the engine getting ready to just combust. Every sign imaginable was there. This bus wasn't operating right. And you could try, and they did try to keep refilling it with what they thought would fix it. But we all knew, and I think even the bus drivers knew, filling it with more coolant doesn't fix a water pump. If you want to fix that on a bus, there's only one way that we're going to do this. You need to get a new one. We were promised a new one, and it never came. We were even promised a brand new bus, and we don't know that it existed. But the point is this. You can try as much as you want to fix something that's broken, but the only and ultimate fix for it is that you get a new one. That was true of a water pump, but it's much more true of us. What we see in that image that we think of so fondly with great memories of joy and hope, we see that image, and when we see that, it actually ought to be a reminder to ourselves about our own hearts. Last week, we talked about our heart, right, as a a factory for evil and sin. God cannot be blamed for such things because in God there is no evil. We're sinful because we want to be. And not only do we want to be, but we love being sinful. We love sin. We are naturally born that way. And the way to fix that isn't by doing good things and putting good things in our heart or trying our best or or even trying in our own way to kill that sin off. The answer for a bus is similar to the answer for a sinner. You need a new heart. Your old heart loves sin. And there is no amount of trying to fix it that's going to work. You need a good one. There's no hope in ourselves to save ourselves. We saw this last week, right? The sinfulness of our heart, it displays itself in this way. You can look back at James 1.15. Desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Sinners can't produce the very thing we need. If you want life, you can't give it to yourself. In and of yourself, your nature, your desires, your loves, your passions, they all produce death. So you need someone to bring you life. That, friends, in all of its simplicity, is the beauty of the gospel. And it's what James is going to turn to now. And the verses that we'll read in James 1, 16 to 18 that we have read, James turns the page a bit on reality, where, yes, we are sinners, and yes, we can't save ourselves. Yes, our hearts are sinful and wicked, and we can't fix it. And James doesn't make any excuse for that, but instead he reminds you God knows what to do with it and God will give you a new heart. Those who have believed upon Christ in faith, it isn't that Jesus fixes them. It is that Jesus makes them alive. 
Ephesians 2 tells us that once we were dead in our sins and trespasses. And I don't know if you know this or not, but dead people can't do anything. You do know that. Dead people can't walk, they can't talk, and they most certainly can't perform a heart transplant. And James reminds us of that this morning. The God who has no evil in him is not tempted by evil, will not tempt you with evil. He is so good that in spite of the fact that you've rebelled against him, in spite of the fact that we all have rebelled against him, we've all disobeyed him, we all deserve wrath, we all deserve punishment, he is so kind and merciful that he would give you a new heart. Maybe if you turn back in Genesis, you remember these two boys named Jacob and Esau. And when we think of them, we know that God says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And most people, when they read that and they think through that, they go, that's kind of messed up. How would God hate Esau? And you're missing the point. It's not a mystery that God would hate anyone. It's a mystery that God would love Jacob. Sinners do not deserve his love. But in Christ, God has given it to sinners freely. It is a mystery that in any way, shape, or form, there is a hope of salvation for sinners. And so, friends, that's what I want you to see this morning. God isn't evil. God isn't at the root of your sin or the reason that you sin or the reason that you love evil. God is the opposite of that. In fact, James's argument stems from the reality that God is good. And most simply put, we can think of it this way. God is good because God saves. Or, or let's stretch it out a little bit further. God alone is good because God alone can save. That's the beauty and mystery of the gospel. Now, we have a big idea up here for you today. I want you to see it. So next slide. This is what I want you to take away from this morning. In light of God's goodness, we can trust in him and we can depend on him. And more than anything, we can recognize that all of God's goodness is most seen and only and truly experienced in knowing the gospel of Jesus. If you want to know God's goodness, then you need to turn to Christ. If you want to see God's goodness, then you need to see Christ. And that's what James is highlighting for us this morning. God is good because God saves. And James does this, his argument works by showing three evidences of how God's goodness works so that you would have a hope in Christ. That's what I want for you this morning. We're going to see that in, in these three ways. Number one, we're going to see that the God of no evil is the God of all good. Number two, we'll see the God of perfect justice is the God of all hope. The God of perfect justice is the God of all hope. And lastly, we'll see the God who made all things is the God remaking all things. The God who made all things is the God remaking all all things. Look with me in James chapter 1, starting here in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved 
brothers. Now, this is an encouraging word because James is writing to a group of believers. In fact, a body of believers that if we were to turn up to James 1, uh, verse 1, he writes to the 12 tribes and the dispersion. It's a group of believers that have been scattered across the world because they're being persecuted for their faith. It's a difficult time for them. It's a difficult time for them. And James is reminding them that difficult times aren't opportunities to give in to your flesh. They're opportunities to trust in God. Those difficult times, they're often the points in which temptations rise up, right? When you're hungry, someone might be tempted to steal. When you lack You might be tempted to take money. When you're angry, you might be tempted to lash out at someone. In the midst of trials, temptations arise. And James is reminding this church, this isn't an opportunity for you to give in to yourself. Remember, that's the sinful way. That's the old way. That isn't who you are anymore. Do not be deceived, brothers. When those things come up, they aren't a sign of what God has done in you. They're a sign of who you were. A Christian is someone who will not blame God for those temptations or for their sin. And so he says, don't be deceived. That isn't from God. And so he's looking back a little bit and reminding this church, do not be deceived. God is not evil. But also he wants to then show them the positive side of that coin. Don't be deceived. God isn't evil. Instead, look at how he is. Verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so our first point is this. The God of no evil is the God of all good. God's character is not in question. He's not at fault for the sin in your life. In fact, he's the only reason there's any good around you. He's the only reason any good exists. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. A bird's melody in the morning is a gift of God. A baby's cry when it comes out the womb is a gift of God. The joys of laughter and friendship, that is a gift of God. The ability to do work and to do it well, that is a gift from God. Pizza, it's a gift from God through the Italians. (laughs) Haircuts for you guys, that's a gift from God. God. Deodorant is definitely a gift from God too. All good things that we've ever known, those are all gifts from God. God is the giver of good gifts because good is in his nature. God can't go against who he is. He doesn't operate in that way. God can only be what he is. Exodus 34, 6 tells us this about who God is. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That is who he is. Proverbs 16.20, whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. God is good. We know this, and James argues for this from the premise that God is a creator. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. That term, Father of lights, it's a reminder. It was a reminder, especially to the Jewish people, of the creator God. The one that if you turn to Genesis 1, you would see each and every single day that God created everything. He said, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. That's the God who made all things. That's the God who made us. And from him comes every good thing. And that never changes. God can't go against that. He will not go against that. He refuses to go against that. He's the father of lights. He is unlike his creation, a creation that has rebelled against him, a creation that has gone against all that is good. Even seen in the world around us. When you walked over here this morning, did you look up? Did you see the sun? Yeah, me neither, because it was dark and gloomy. There were clouds or smoke. There's probably a fire out there. Who knows? Maybe it's the bus. It's out there, and, and you couldn't see the sun because something was blocking it. And James says, God is not like that. He's the father of lights, and in him there's no variation or shadow due to change. He, he's building this picture of creation. The sun that's up in the morning but gone at night. Or the sun that's up in the day but covered by clouds. God isn't like that. He doesn't have phases. He isn't bipolar. He, he doesn't choose to be good one day and choose to be evil the next day. He never changes. And that is a bedrock of hope for every believer. That is a bedrock of hope for every person that's ever existed. God is good and God will never stop being good. Jesus tells us he makes the rain to fall on both the just and the unjust. Breath in our lungs is a sign of his goodness. We don't deserve it, but we have it. God is good. And now James wants to use this as the basis for explaining to us and showing us just how good God is. Not only do birds sing, not only is the ocean's crashing wave something that is a delight to the eyes, not only do you love pizza, but God is so good that not only is there no evil in him, and not only does all good come from him, but secondly, the God of perfect justice is the God of all hope. The God of perfect justice is the God of all hope. We've seen in verse 17, intrinsic to who God is, out of necessity to his character, in order for God to maintain his integrity, he must always be good, and he is. Now listen to these beautiful words in verse 18. 
of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Anyone that knows the gospel, anyone that understands the beauty of Jesus, understands how marvelous these words are. God is so good that bound up in his goodness, out of his own choosing, because he is good, he has desired and made it possible for sinners to be born again. That's what James says. Do you want to test God's goodness? Do you want to question God's goodness? Go for it. But recognize this, though all of us deserve to be in hell, God has made it possible for us to be with him in Jesus. You can't question a God like that. You can't deny a God like that. And you ought not to reject a God like that. You don't follow Jesus because first and foremost you wanted to. Look at how good he is. He's made it possible out of his own will. Salvation happens because God wants it to happen. It's not something that if we were left with the choice, we'd make it happen. You could give us a million tries. We would never choose salvation. You, you could give us a million opportunities. We would never choose God. You could give us a million opportunities and we would always reject his offer. But out of his own will, he's made it possible. Jesus tells us this in John 14, 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If it isn't through me, if it isn't by my doing, no one's coming in. That's Jesus. And the apostles kept this up. They understood this. They preached this and they, they declared this and they, and they believed in it. Colossians 1, verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. In other words, the only reason that you believe in him, the only reason you're running the race well, is because you've believed in the gospel. A gospel we didn't desire, but a gospel he's given us. Of his own will, he has brought us forth by the word of truth. God desires to save. Listen, the fact that sinners deserve hell and justice and wrath, that doesn't make God bad, that makes him good. If someone you loved was murdered, you would want to see the bad guy punished, right? If someone you loved was wrong, or if you were wronged, you would want to see the person that did that wrong punished. That's not a bad thing when it comes to that, right? That's a good thing. Sinners deserve the same. The reason we think that way is because God has made it that way. And sinners deserve judgment. And God is perfectly just, but he's made it so that in his perfect justice, he sent his son and he executed all justice upon him so that all who would believe in Jesus 
might not have to die, but instead could live. The very God that because of your sin you want to hide from and run away from is the only God you can turn to to be saved. That's what James is laying out for us. And it's amazing that he draws out this picture that in the very same way that our hearts, when we give in to our sin, and that, and that desire is conceived, gives birth to that sin, and that sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. God's heart is so different. God's heart is good and kind. And in that goodness and kindness out of his own will, when God does what he desires, it brings forth life by the word of truth. Sinners would choose death, but God has chosen life. That's what James is reminding us here. This word of truth, we understand it. It's, it's so simply put, the gospel of Jesus. Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The word of truth is a message, absolutely. But did you notice in Ephesians 1.13, it's about a person? The word of truth the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in, not it, him. That is your only hope. Your only hope in this life as a sinner is that you would believe upon him. His word is true. His testimony is true. All that he says is true. And it's bound up in the person and work of Jesus. The God who should punish us has chosen to make it possible to save us. And that possibility is guaranteed because Jesus is worthy. He's a true Savior, a true Messiah. He is Lord. One day every knee and every tongue will bow before him. And today God makes an invitation to each and every single one of you. Believe in him now while he saves This is the beauty of the gospel that we're beholding here. It's that sinners have a hope, and that hope is bound up in God alone. Have you trusted in him? Have you believed upon him? Do you love him? Have you recognized your sin for what it is? Sin isn't defined by you. Sin is defined by God. And God has made it so very clear that all of us fall short of his glory. And God has made it very clear that all of us deserve his wrath. But God has also made it very clear that he sent his son to do that which you could not do for yourself. That when you could not give yourself a new heart, God says, I will ensure that this person is born again by my work, not their own. This is what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, isn't it? Nicodemus wants to know, well, how can we, how can we be right with God? Jesus said, you must be born again. To be born again, you must recognize that salvation is a gift from God. The same God who is right to judge us has desire to save us. Do you know him? Do you love him? 
Thirdly, I want us to see here the God who made all things is remaking all things. And here we'll begin to start a little bit even with our conversation for next week. A little bit of how do I know that this has happened in my heart? I can see that I'm a sinner. I can see that he desires to save. And so now what? What, what of it? Well, what am I supposed to do? How do I know that he has saved me? Well, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Here, James is looking back and dipping back into a little bit of Old Testament uh, theology and religion and ritual. The first fruits were the best of your harvest. A farmer would set out his crop, and in the very beginning of the season, he, he would look to gather up the very best from his field. And he was to offer that to God. That was the first fruits, that which was best, that which showed signs of life, that which showed signs of a good harvest. And that was to be presented to God. Here, James is using that same picture to describe those who have been born again. Those who see their sin, those who recognize that only salvation can only come through God and not themselves, they become a type of first fruits. But notice what he says first fruits of his creatures. What is that? Well, what is he talking about? It's a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. That's what he's aiming at. It's that you aren't a broken-down bus anymore. You got a new water pump, so we shouldn't expect you every 15 minutes to need more coolant. And we shouldn't keep living the same way we were before. Why are you breaking down all the time? That isn't reflect that you've been given something new. The same is true for a sinner, in particular, a sinner that's been brought forth by the word of truth. If you've been given a new heart, then we'll see a new life. If you've been given the the heart of Christ to live and to breathe and to move and to work out your salvation in a way that would honor him, we should all be able to see it. And you should be able to present that to God as a pleasing aroma to him. It's that your life isn't the same anymore. Yes, you'll have struggles with sin. Yes, you'll battle those things all your life. But not hopelessly, not aimlessly, but with power and determination to follow God, to rest upon him and to trust in him, to know that Jesus has conquered all those things and now he's given you a new heart so that in a new life you would live in a way that is pleasing unto him. Is that newness something that is reflected in your life? Particularly you here who say that you're a Christian, say that you follow Jesus. I wonder if there's students in this room that are more fans of Jesus than followers of Jesus. I can highlight that for you a little bit. You can win theological arguments. 
You know Bible verses. You can show up to church. You can tell your friends about Jesus. And yet you live just like every single other person in the world. You love to debate about things that are lofty and high. You, you love to talk about things that are theological or doctrinal. You even love talking about your Bible. You love doing all the things so that people can see you. And yet your life doesn't demonstrate that something new has happened on the inside. First fruits of his creatures. They're people who've been given something they couldn't get. And now they live it out. And it's a beautiful portrait that James is playing. We've talked oftentimes now and gone back to Genesis 1 through 3. Because James is playing at how creation first came about and now the new creation that Jesus is working out. And in that garden, there the word of God promised that once man sinned, he would surely die. And now in the gospel, in the word of Jesus, we have been promised that those who trust in him in faith will surely live. God is making all things new, and it starts with you. When you go from here, I hope that you live for him more than that you sit through sermons. That this would just be an opportunity for you to bolster up what God is already doing in you. Read your Bible. Pray more. Fellowship with each other. And then use all of that to live a life that is worthy of the calling that you've received in Christ Jesus? Are you living in a manner worthy of that calling? Do you live in a way that reflects that you evidence that you are born again in Christ? You can't claim Christ and not live for him. It doesn't work that way. Here's the thing. There's nothing more natural than for someone to believe and someone to obey. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Love and obedience go hand in hand. And those who have seen Christ for who he is, understand that they are being remade. They are being remade to live for God, to honor God, and to reflect his glory. A God who is good and not evil. A a God who is patient and kind. A God who would make salvation possible even though we have made it impossible. William Varner puts it this way. Just as the good and complete God gives us only good and complete gifts, so he desires us to be good and complete persons. That's what James is saying for us. God has given us his very best. Not so that we would be lazy, not so that we would live in the way that we want, not so that we would continue in our sins, not so that we would continue in our desires and lusts and passions, but so that we would reflect his goodness and his perfection. Be holy as he is holy. Live for him. The wisest lifestyle possible is to live in an acknowledgement of who God is and who you are. You need grace. You need mercy or else there is no hope. And if you've received that, praise God. 
Now, would you live for him? You're going to go off. I mean, all of you have started school already, and I'm grateful for that. That's awesome. And as you go, there is a life that you're going to reflect to other people. And I pray and hope that as you've trusted in Jesus, if you've trusted in Jesus, that it would be a life that reflects his goodness and his mercy. I pray that it would be a life that reflects the heart of God, even in this passage. And I pray that it would be a life that causes others to think, what is up with that person? That's not normal. That's not how I'm used to seeing this lived out. That's not how I'm used to seeing people do things. That's not how I'm used to seeing people live their life. What's up with that? And you would take every opportunity to tell them, you have nothing to do with it. It's not something that you've done, but it's something that God has done and something that God offers to do for all who would repent from their sins, turn away from their old life and give themselves to Jesus. Would you live in that way? Would you reflect God's glory in that way? God is good and he delights in saving. If you know that, then live it out. And if you don't know that, God, through his word, has been very honest with you. Would you be honest with him? Would you turn to him in recognition of your sin and in recognition of his grace? Receive his grace. Choose this day to live for him and watch your life be made new. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you that though judgment has been promised because of our sin, mercy has been promised because of our Savior. We have a good and holy God who sent us his perfect and righteous Son so that we would not have to fear death, but that in him we might have life. Thank you, God. Apart from you, we could do nothing. And most certainly, we could not save ourselves. Lord, help those in here who have not been honest with you to see your word, to understand it as truth, to to recognize there is no other option, there is no other alternative, there is no other reality but you and your word and your gospel. And help them to turn to you in faith. And those of us here who have professed to love you and are looking to follow you, help us, God. Just as we've needed you to save us, much more now do we need you to continue to sanctify us. Help us in this effort, Lord, all the while turning to you in praise and thanks for your steadfast love toward us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.